Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm Michael. Wait, no, I'm Ethan. I didn't even do that one on purpose. It would have been really clever if that was a callback to the last episode. But I'm definitely Ethan. I have an identity. What? I'm Michael. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for not adding to my distress this time. Um, yeah. This is this is a podcast where we talk about books, but not about scotch. This time, mm-hmm. we're not even drinking scotch, because I betrayed us. I um, know. I made us drink Red Breast Single Pot Still Irish Whiskey. My mm-hmm. bottling is the Lusta edition, which is finished in, just says, hand-selected cherry casks. Michael, your mm-hmm. bottle says something very similar, but at the same time more specific. Yes, mine is the Red Breast Pedro Jimenez edition, finished in Pedro Jimenez Sherry Hogsheads. Yes. So, so it's, there you I, have it. Yeah. I assume that they're different, you know, that they're different expressions and that if you side by side, they'd taste different. Um, like, Pedro Jimenez Sherry Hogsheads, it's like a more specific way of saying Lusau Sherry Casks. Um, mm. At least I assume, I guess maybe there's other houses that make sherry that make yeah. Pedro Jimenez sherry that aren't Lusau. I guess I'm just assuming it's Lusau. Anyway. Uh, yeah. After making it clear, I have no idea about either the things that either of us are drinking. Um, I would like my wife to read the rules. Mm-hmm. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, wife. Uh, Yeah, now we can talk about this book. I'm doing it. I'm doing it real fast this time because I th- I feel like we dawdled the last episode, and like oh, you can't yeah. have two dawdly episodes in a row. So um, no, of course not. Yeah. That's, anyway, that's why we do two episodes so we can dawdle for one and then actually do something the second. Except by the second, we're like some red breast in, which I can say because we <laughs> haven't clinked glasses yet. Um, right. So it's like, we don't do anything in that one either? 
I don't know. We never we never talk about books on this show either. I don't know what Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch, the podcast that accomplishes nothing. <laughs> that should be a t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> uh anyway, that said, Slancha. I said we can talk about this book, but I failed to say what the book was. The yeah, book is Filthy Animals by Brandon Taylor. Um, this is part two. You might want to go back to part one where we do give you a chance to read this book mm-hmm. before we sort of plow ahead. Uh, right, and probably some of what we'll say here will be better contextualized by what we said there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um. So, Michael, you left us with a dangling participle last time, uh, in the form of asking dangling what now? A dangling participle. Um, is it like the a part-time principal? Is that what's he dangling from, or she? You know, women can be principals. <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> reminding me. <laughs> All of the Dorling Kinder- Kinderly books that I read as a child only had male principles in them. Uh, I just threw my copy of Filthy Animals across the room for no reason. And now I'm going to try to pick it up without standing. This is... So you really just wanted to prove to me that we don't do anything in the second episode. Yep. <laughs> Except you watch me try to use a share to fish a book. <laughs> oh, I think I can get it. I think. And no, the chair has just stood up and thrown the book to the other side of the room. Oh boy. Now here we go. Got it. Alright. So anyway... Mm-hmm. Uh, you asked me this question about why Huck Finn stood out to you. Specifically, a yeah. reference to Huck Finn in the story, in this book. Uh, the story yep. being as though that were love. Um, right. I... Uh, also, while we're like trolling for references that we're comfortable with uh i just happened to open to the top of page 103 where um uh at the bottom of 102 actually mm-hmm. hartius references yep. ein festeberg is, is unser gut got mm-hmm. my german is terrible and then mm-hmm. um simon simon says protestant hymns okay martin luther I mean, that was too obvious for the two of us to talk about, but I did want to acknowledge it. Um, So I want to talk about something. And here what we've done is we've like dangled the, you know, two week long um, uh, bait here. And I'm going to just take us completely away from that, possibly never to return. Um, Oh, boy. It's like, you know how every CW drama that you accidentally start watching like they always have like a cliffhanger at the end of an episode and then that cliffhanger mm-hmm. is resolved within like the cold open of the next episode like it was literally just to get you to that episode and then right yeah anyway this is that yep 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 um 
Cool. So this is partly, uh, I okay in in all in all uh, in all seriousness because this is a serious podcast. Um, Very serious. This may relate in a way, or it may not. I'm just sort of scattering breadcrumbs um, mm-hmm. here at the beginning, and I'm going to see if you can pick those breadcrumbs up, put them on your conspiracy Ooh, theory. Yum, yum, look at these breadcrumbs. Okay, thank you for yes-anding, but I was going to say pick these breadcrumbs up, put them on your conspiracy theory board, and connect them with red string. And now you've... Sure, you... I'll do that, and then I'm going to eat them. Yeah, I was going to say, you've now eaten them, so like it's not going to form a picture. It's just going to look like a lot of red string, and you're going to look insane. So, <laughs> um, But I guess better you than me. What else is new? <laughs> exactly. Um, so... Yes. Anyway, uh, I wanted to include some reference to the things I'm about to say somewhere in this set of episodes, partly because it kind of came up while we were reading, uh, while we were reading this book, and and while I was kind of processing it, um, hmm. there was a piece. There's a piece in the New Yorker um, called hmm. "The Case Against the Trauma Plot," uh, oh. and um, then our, uh, our author for today, Brandon Taylor, on his Substack, uh, wrote a response essay called Emotional Support Trauma Plot. Um, hmm. and, like, basically both of, both of the essays are worth reading, and I would read the New Yorker one first. Um, Taylor's essay, I think, is much better on sort of every level, but... Um, you know, they're, they're in a, they're very much in a dialogue. So, you know, uh, yeah. Michael, did you happen to read either of these essays? No, I did not. Okay. Um, so the first essay, the case against the trauma plot, um, I thought was actually really pleasing and satisfying. And it also resonated with me because it was related to something I have talked about and have been talking about with several of the people in my life who are either, you know, creative people or, or, you know, amateur Mm. critics of sorts, whatever those, the people in my life who I discuss these things with, um, Mm -hmm. the idea, like the trauma plot has become a huge, at least as it's characterized in this essay has become very tropey, uh, very prevalent, especially in like big budget Hollywood type fair um Mm. both tv and movies and at its simplest and worst and perhaps the least charitable description of it the trauma plot essentially gives a character some sort of like problematic behavior whether it causes problems for themselves or for others around them um right and then at some point there's often a flashback scene or if not then like just sort of a a in the present monologue by the character um, that sort of explains their current behavior in terms of some past trauma that they went through. Um, You know, easy, easy versions Mm -hmm. of this are like the philanderer who lost his mother at a young age. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So I don't know, like basically what the, 
it becomes this thing where, and like, I don't know, there are tons of examples, probably even in, um, oh, actually, one, one that I remember from, uh, the New Yorker essay, mm. which is by, uh, Paru Seagal, Paul Seagal, P-A-R-U-L, whose name I am almost certainly mispronouncing, um, uh, the example is, uh, in Ted Lasso, there's, like, I guess spoilers for season two of Ted Lasso, but there's, um, uh, like, Ted Lasso has to go to a funeral, and he, like, has a panic attack, and it turns out that, like, the last funeral he went to was his, his dad's, and his dad had committed suicide or something, you know, something like that. It's, like... It becomes this very, and you know, I don't, I don't mean to like be dismissive of the writing in Ted Lasso or anyone who's suffered like those very real kinds of traumas, but mm. structurally, what happens is it becomes almost this like poker chip that you cash in for emotional, uh, you know, emotional resonance in your story, and um, uh, Seagull's sort of thesis is that to do that in a cheap and sort of unrealistic way. And, and the argument is often these are, you know, the ways that these play out um, are unrealistic uh, to, to do that sort of cheapens both like storytelling and actual trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's, I don't like, and and Brandon Taylor's like response to it really like to to take Seagull's essay and Taylor's essay and then put them into this book with regards to trauma would be really interesting. Hmm. Um mm -hmm. and I I just I don't know that like without rereading all three of those things, I don't know that I could do that justice other than sort of uh, mm -hmm. suggesting it because Taylor's book does have a surprising amount to do with, with trauma and with, um, absolutely, you know, people behaving in certain ways related to, uh, their, their trauma. Um, right. Like, and, you know, um, I think Taylor's not necessarily, in uh not necessarily intention well i think the book came out before either of these essays did uh oh, sure. but it, it if if they had come out in a different order it would almost feel like taylor's book is intentionally subverting some of these these like trauma <laughs> plots um right oh so one one thing um related to how Taylor handles trauma. Um, mm -hmm. He, Taylor, uh, responding to Seagull um, in like the, the second half of one of the paragraphs of this essay, he says, Taylor says, one of my teachers, Charles D'Ambrosio, in a fit of weary peak said something to us like, you guys are very smart. You're incredibly good at depth. I think you need more surface. If I could make you write less smart, I would. And Taylor, 
Taylor says, now that seems like a contradiction. Like, why would a writing teacher want his students to write less smart, to write with less depth? But I understood immediately what he meant, that there was too much psychology in our work, that we were writing reams of exposition and backstory trying to explain and justify our characters rather than Mm -hmm. attending to the basic surface facts of their existence in the world that we were creating. Um, And then sort of verbal ellipses here to the end of that paragraph we were mining the depth of our characters inner lives without providing them room to surprise themselves or us so then i think it's actually a little earlier in the essay taylor says the way that people read fiction these days uh on the hunt one of my creative writing teachers used to describe the kind of attention he wanted us to bring to workshop stories as reading like a prosecutor now that that like couple of like hmm. uh starter sentences on this paragraph jumped out at me when I read the first one because that's like a concept we've talked about on this on this podcast many times. It's like almost one mm-hmm. of our recurring themes. But I think Taylor means it in a different way and I think the difference itself is interesting. Um hmm. Taylor says, this reading like a prosecutor, this strikes me as a form of paranoid reading in which the reader approaches a text from the defensive supposition that the author is out to deceive and beguile and misdirect. You look for holes in the author's defense through which the poorly disguised light of biography shines. Um, And then Taylor goes on to say a bunch of stuff that I quite agree with about how boring biography is and how boring it is to read fiction in that mm-hmm. in that paranoid in that prosecute pro as if you were a prosecutor uh mm-hmm. trying to to suss out what is facts about the author's life like very mm-hmm. smart boys uh especially at an undergraduate level but sometimes they they manage to do it at much higher levels will often do this and like yep. there's this like smug thing where you you figure out that like a character or an incident is is based on the author's life and i completely agree that like that is always just boring as all get out to me like it's it's perhaps most egregiously done with shakespeare yes um like reading his plays and well like you can you can take it any direction you want read his plays and determine he's a catholic read his plays determine he's a protestant yeah read his plays determine whatever you want um, i mean to be fair about his life yeah um, to be to be fair on the topic of shakespeare like often sure. biographers and historians and like historical critics will do that with shakespeare because he went ahead and gave us so much little else that like right if we do want to understand the character of shakespeare like we almost only have his plays and what we can suss out from his plays in a way that's not true about like most other major literary figures that lived since shakespeare's time but right you're absolutely right that 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 it's a it's egregiously done when you suss out say that he's a catholic from his plays and then you turn around and read that back into his plays somehow and like yeah yeah uh but anyway i i think it's interesting that taylor brings up that idea of reading like a prosecutor um because i think Mm -hmm. when we 
do it on this podcast. And I think that's in the spirit of where I got that idea from, from Michael Schmidt. We, we are much more Mm. reading, uh, not authors as if we were prosecutors, but characters Mm -hmm. as if we were prosecutors. Um, and I wonder if there's maybe a danger in modern literary fiction or all literary fiction of losing Mm. that distinction. Hmm. Um, okay. In, in what way? Just in the way that it's so, it can be so academically rewarded to Mm. read fiction biographically, especially of major authors. Um, that if that becomes the default mode of reading it, that this must have, you know, something to do directly with the author's life, opinions, or experiences, you miss a whole realm Mm -hmm. of fiction you know, that, for example, Neil Gaiman would, would talk about in terms of just, like, making up stories. Right. Or... Yeah. Whole, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that could be a, a, a danger. Um, and I can see how many could fall into that. I'm, tr- I'm trying right now not to say, but we're, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, like we're above that. Um, I, f- I feel like the, 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 uh, you know, motif of this podcast has always been a, to contradict ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. B to say, we're not talking about the things that we're then going on to talk about, but C also mm-hmm. like, we just talk about what we talk about. And if we do it wrong, we do it wrong. Like, right. um, you know, this is, this is conversation. This is not essay. No. Uh, so, I mean, we may do that. Is, but it is what might I would... be someone's English homework. I mean, I dearly hope it is. Uh, <laughs> if for no other reason than like, there's a lot of jokes that like the person who would print out, even even cleverly try to rework the tr- a transcript of our show mm-hmm. and give to their professor that would be us making jokes to their professor that they themselves wouldn't get. Right. At least I'd like to think there oh. are. Again, maybe I'm wrong yeah. about that. Um, yeah. Uh, I was going to say something. Oh, and again, like to tie this all back into you asking why... Uh, Huckleberry Finn jumped out at you in uh yeah. um as though that were love. I guess I don't know what the answer is, but I want to be careful about reading it a certain way. So I wouldn't, you know mm-hmm. I guess sometimes I, I, I talk about what I wouldn't do and it helps me arrive at what I would say about it. But sure. like I wouldn't you see it in the negative. I yeah. I, I wouldn't want to like necessarily try to say i don't know like a a very clever literature boy would be tempted to try to read the structure of huckleberry finn back onto this this book Mm -hmm. as a whole um yeah or or read the structure of moby dick you know and there's there's Mm -hmm. like very super obvious like things that i would say almost as a joke almost as a satire about like oh sure oh does is a I mean, I guess you could, you could call like, see, and this is, but this is like how, how, um, almost vampiristic this, this type of reading gets, because once you mm-hmm. think of it, like it's there. Cause it's like, could you 
talk about Hargis as as a Simon's you know, Simon's Moby Dick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I resist saying the term white whale because that feels loaded, but you know. But like, is that the point? Is that right? the point? Yeah, <laughs> you could do something with that. You could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could do. You know. Uh, I mean, you could even like look at um, Lionel, which, first of all, it's interesting that Brandon Taylor, uh, you know, says says what he says about biography, um, and mm-hmm. has Lionel as the closest thing, like screen time wise, stage time wise, the closest thing to the main character of this whole book. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. because in a lot of superficial ways, Lionel could look a lot like Brandon Taylor, I think. Right. Um, but again, you want to resist that? Uh, like, I see, I'm, if I'm being a clever literary boy, I'm now tempted to like read Lionel as, uh, mm. you know, he's, he's Huck or he's Jim and, um, yeah. Sophie, Sophie and, uh, oh my gosh, Charles. Charles. Sophie and Charles are like the king and the duke. You know, sure. you can make any number of these connections, but, uh, mm-hmm. the you know, and that's very, to me, that feels very... Or turn him then, you know, into Ishmael, and Sophie and Charles are Ahab and Starbuck or... Queequeg you know, or... Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever. Yeah. Yeah, any number of things like that. But it's like... Where it, ultimately, to me, when when considering something like that, the question is like, where does that get us? Like, mm-hmm. what is that? How does that help with our understanding? Or, right. you know, I guess I guess this very simple version is the question. So what? Like, therefore, so, what is is that the point then? Like, this sort of reference is here, and other references are are here to say. So what? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Like you can you can put this parallel on there but it's also more than that. It's also not that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, and to me like in this book in particular those specific references I don't I they I I was going to say they feel like traps but they mm. don't necessarily feel like traps in the sense that like Brandon Taylor wants to trick me into thinking a certain thing. It's that mm-hmm. like they're traps that I bring to the book that I could think a certain thing and then stop thinking about it and be satisfied with my own cleverness. Um, mm-hmm. And possibly because of that, they feel like it, it almost feels like they're in their Morris as like, like provocations or spurs to think about yeah. more than this. Like, Yes, I I could be I could be doing this. I could just make you know, um, Huckleberry Finn for the twenty first century. But like, I don't know, acknowledging it and then not. Well, I guess just mm-hmm. acknowledging it maybe you know makes me feel like there's there's more interesting stuff going on. Like, yes, this is here. Right. It needs to be acknowledged, but think about the other stuff. Right, exactly. You know, and that's that's something that in literature in general, when you make a thing explicit, it's not about that thing anymore. Right. Yes. So, <laughs> um, that's 
that's kind of yeah that's that's what we're we're saying here sure um i i wanted to say that it's interesting you brought up trauma because it's literally one of the things i i wrote down is just the word trauma sure (laughs) um and I, i wasn't even necessarily thinking about the trauma plot specifically but that's an interesting sort of concept right um i was thinking just in terms of trauma in general and what reality that creates sure um and so i mean you can look at the character of lionel as an example of someone who has undergone trauma you know he's a a suicide survivor right right um and still dealing with mental illness and um, so, and, and he's got this interesting experience that's brought out in Potluck, and then it comes out again in the, the last story of the, the book, is it Meat? Yes. Um, to where he references it, this idea, um, or this, this experience that he had where he saw himself step in front of a bus, mm-hmm. um, and it was like this real thing. So, um, trauma is very present for him anyway. Um, and for him, and then... I think in general for any character who's experiencing trauma, it becomes difficult to grab a hold of what's real. Like he has this, uh, he, he comments on that experience of watching himself step in front of a bus and says, I, I, for a minute, I thought I'd done it. I thought I had stepped in front of that bus. Right. Um, and without making... Like, like, there are fun literary tricks that you could do to call into question what's real and what's not, and none of that is in here. Right. Um, but at the same time, you feel that same experience of these characters of not totally knowing what's real, um, kind of floating um, and not having an anchor. Right. Um, which is an effect of trauma. It's uh, dissociation. Right. Um, that uh, uh, you remove yourself from reality. It's a trick your brain plays to protect itself. Um, problem is then that becomes the new reality for the brain is removing your yourself from, from reality. Right. Um, but this is called out almost explicitly right about the middle of the book, which makes it kind of a contender in my brain for theme sure. of the book. Um, page 128 it's in this story, Proctoring. Um, Lionel and Sophie are, are talking here. Um, they're talking about dance and, and other things. And um, Lionel puts his finger on what Sophie says when she um, is talking about dance and how, how she feels when she's dancing. And she's really opening up here. Uh, she says, when I'm dancing, sometimes I feel that little ping. I know where I am in the world. I can feel myself uh ellipsis here uh and lionel says it's your something and then sophie says everybody deserves a something right uh and so that something is like the real thing this is this is the thing that defines your identity but it's also the thing that anchors you in a reality Mm. um and I, I don't know that we're given any key into Sophie's trauma particularly besides just like leading up to dance in general, but we don't necessarily need that. Um, no, I mean, we do get like her sister died 
yeah kind of some other and, you know like it's sprinkled through there but um mm-hmm. there's no and like this is this is like the other thing i i was thinking about with this book and the trauma plot like right. i don't uh, the clever boy thing to to mm-hmm. say would be like brandon taylor in responding to this trauma plot essay is trying to like sort of clear ground for his own book and mm-hmm. i don't think I don't know to justify if, its existence. <laughs> not only, not even. I mean, y- yes, maybe, but also yeah. maybe just to, um, sort of clear ground so that people don't dismiss his book as an example of this or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and I don't, I don't need to know whether that's what's happening it, or it really doesn't care. Need to be that. And it yeah. doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't need to be that. Um, but no matter what, like, I think this book is basically the opposite of what you'd give it as an example of the bad trauma plot. Like Mm -hmm. the trauma again is so braided into the characters, but without, you know, it doesn't necessarily have its own identity and it's rather just like something that informs the characters and that they inform each other about. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems much more, much more real to deploy a cliche of my own, much less trite, you know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, and, and yeah, like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm getting too far off of, of what your point was, but like, the the way that it's just sort of sprinkled in here. Then my sister died, but then we're not talking about. That's not what the rest of the monologue is about. Like, feels right. very, you know, feels a lot more like well, human people that I've known in my life. And that's that's if I if I understand the objection to the trauma plot, it's when the trauma becomes the only significant character trait and like everything can be explained about this character by this trauma and like their whole overarching arc is in resolving the trauma or addressing the trauma yeah it's like you know it, i mean to say everything might be a little a little bit much but like yeah that that their arc is basically bad reactions to the trauma, you know, unburying the trauma and like dealing with it. And now they're like the, the better person, the good person that like Mm -hmm. we always knew they could be kind of thing. Sure. And like, it's yeah. And the objection to that being that it's very simplistic, that it's very, you know, reductive. Um, Mm hmm. And it, it, like, cheapens both trauma and healing in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It, it cheapens everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, like, I'm having kind of a visceral reaction to that. Right. Um, that, like, um, that's, that's not how you deal with someone who has experienced trauma. Um, well, it's not how... Yes, it's good to address that trauma but like that's not that's not you don't view that as what defines the person that's like a, their definition comes apart from 
the trauma. Right. That's a really good point. And it's also just not how trauma processing happens or works. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's like, okay, in that sense, like I, I haven't read either of these essays, so I'm just kind of reacting to sure. your summaries and, and my own insights or, or reactions to that. Um, right. Like... In that sense, I can agree with the New Yorker article that I haven't read and therefore can't really agree with. <laughs> that, like, the trauma plot is fake. Like, yeah. it it's, at best, um, it touches on one aspect of a character. Right. Um, and, and that, I mean, that... helpful or, or real. That may be the thing... That, like, and that may be the thing. I, I just, like, paging through this essay again, I, I need to reread mm. that as well. Uh, Taylor's essay, sure. specifically. I read the trauma mm, yeah. plot essay a couple times, so I feel like I still have right. that fairly well retained. But, um, you know, that may be the thing that Seagull in The New Yorker is complaining about and that Taylor sort of gets right in this book is mm. the idea that, like, trauma is there and in as much as fiction can represent reality like it's real to include it and have it inform a character but it's an aspect it's not a totality and like mm-hmm. the more you reduce a character to trauma as a totality the less you actually understand them right right yeah i agree very good very good um, I think we've got a few minutes left before we yeah need to get into ratings. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have anything you want to bring up yet, Michael? Um, not. If you don't, I have not one. necessarily that I want to bring up. If you don't have anything, I have a question I can ask you. But okay. if you've got something, let's hear that instead. <laughs> I have a couple, possibly very small things. Okay, um, okay. One is just uh, on your very delicately um, preceded set section of criticism from the, uh, or interpretation, whatever you want to call it, from the last mm. episode um, regarding vampires, a phrase I can say. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, and, and a repeated motif. You, you just had me looking at this last page, this very last page of the novel, um, and it's a repeated a repeated motif from "As Though That Were Love," that we spent a mm. decent amount of time talking about last last episode. Um, literally, the last sentence in the book um, is a is a bit of dialogue, um, and the dialogue is "Let's go inside." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yet another, you know, vampire motif, the whole, like, do you let them in? You know, the, they have right. to be invited in. Let's go in. And that comes up. That's another very vampiric thing from uh, As Though That Were Love. And that recurs mm-hmm. here. Um, excuse me. It that In that image recurs multiple times of... Well, it's significance. in the first one with Potluck when yes, uh, I was, I was gonna, Charlie I was gonna comes. Mention that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, w- in fact, it's in Potluck twice. Uh, mm-hmm. First at the very beginning, 
uh, when Lionel yeah. comes to the party. He does he does he basically wait to be invited in? Um, I, I I don't know if it's like an explicit invitation, but he stands there on the stoop and yeah, like we, we talked last episode about um, how like it's it's dwelt on that he's he's powerfully outside. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's very clear that it's he's not inside until finally he is. <laughs> yeah, crossing thresholds is just a big. You know, yep. big recurring image, um, which is interesting because you know, again, that that idea of of reality and the loss of reality, like, um, that's it, thresholds are are markers of where something ends and something begins, right? Right, and so like in this idea of a loss of reality, where do I end? Where right. does anything else begin? Um, this is a thing in um the story Anne of Cleves. Yes. where Marta um, kind of feels herself dissolving um, yeah. in that story. Um, yeah. that That's kind of a theme throughout, too, that I think is tied right in there with this idea of thresholds, that when you cross a threshold, uh, you're marking the reality of the thing, but then by going through it, you're eliminating it. Yeah. And... Um, it, it's allowed to bleed out and dissipate and dissolve. Sure. Um, actually, so I was going to say one other, one yeah. other thing, but, uh, you brought up Anna Cleves and that reminded me again, you know, secret third episode is a, is a recurring motif here. And I think we have a secret third episode that could be about a bunch of things, maybe even a fourth episode. Um, because like, we could spend a whole episode talking more explicitly about race and probably putting mm-hmm. our foot, p- putting our foots in our mouths a bunch of times, as they say. Um, and then, like, th- there's a bunch of other stuff that I could have brought up that I thought to bring up that just, as usual, you know, there's there's yeah. never enough time. Um, no, of course not. And one of one of those one of those things from the secret third episode would be the idea of place. Um, mm-hmm. Which you alluded to when I when I asked you the very open ended question at the beginning of last episode, <laughs> the idea of like the midwestern novel, and mm-hmm. we could bring we could bring Nancy Bungie into it, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the two places that and it's throughout this, um, and even in some of those the stuff set in Alabama and so forth, but uh, you know ideas of place, but. The two that jumped out to me specifically because of just where I've lived for the majority of my life um, is the second the second paragraph uh, mm. of uh, Potluck. Um, the host lived in the first floor apartment of a Near East Side duplex separated by a tiny cul-de-sac from the wide bottom cottages that fronted Lake Monona. Um, mm-hmm. now this is, this is a bit of a drive from, uh, from where I live, but like, if I wanted to, I could walk, I could right now walk to there. I know exactly where that is. Like, you know, obviously I exaggerate slightly, like there's a, there's several of that place, but like, I could, right. you know, if you were here with me right now where I live, I could walk you from where I live to that 
to that place. Like, I know where uh -huh. that is. Um, and it, it was an interesting feeling because I've only ever heard people uh, who live in, and here we go, who live in Dublin um, talk about <laughs> that experience. Bingo. With, thank you. <laughs> with James Joyce's works. Like, you know, J Joyce, especially in Ulysses, but also in um, uh, Finnegan's Wake. Um, oh. Also Dubliners, actually. Uh, and probably his others as well. But, you know, like people who've grown up in Dublin can read Ulysses and like they can walk that route, uh. you know. Um, this is the first book where I've been able to, uh, like, I could do a similar thing, even if it's uh -huh. in a very minor way, you know. Um, and then Anne of Cleves, the story of the uh -huh. relationship between Sigrid and Marta, is a very similar thing. And specifically, like, to have, uh, I believe, Sigrid be a grad student in Madison. Um, I think so. And to have Marta be sort of a sort of a blue-collar worker in Baraboo. Like, I uh -huh. know I have met both of these people. I, <laughs> I, like, putting Sigrid in Madison and Marta in Baraboo is, like, exactly right. Um, <laughs> and, like, again, trying to compress for time, I could, I, I could either spend one minute explaining this or another hour and mm -hmm. nothing in between the two. Um, so I'm just right. going to leave it there. Uh, but that said, like, the sense of place is interesting because, you know, mm -hmm. in, in Joyce, like, Dublin is a character. Um, right. The Irish consciousness is a character. Uh, and the question, like, if I was leading, you know, if I was teaching Fiction 101, especially in Fiction 101, English 101, or a 100-level mm. English class introduction to, you know, lit studies or something i would give them this story and talk about place and i don't know what um, the answer would be i'd be i'd actually like this is one of the few times i miss teaching because i'd be really interested in uh the answers to this question of a group of roughly 20 year olds who had grown up in this area um like how significant was place here you know and the the litmus test question is could you take this story and set it somewhere else and would it be the same story mm -hmm. because that will tell you how much place is involved and again i'm just raising questions here that i don't necessarily know the answers to but mm -hmm. um like it, it was actually a weird it was like when you've always wanted to be famous and then you get on the radio for the first time and you don't know what to say like it was a weird mm -hmm. experience Especially, again, Anne of Cleves, but some other parts of this book being so perfectly that way for me, and yet not necessarily knowing what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, Michael, not to put you on the spot, just do you have anything to say to that before I veer one more time? Like, I kind of want to just ask you how this fits into the concept of the Midwestern novel. That's our secret fifth episode. I but, don't like, have yeah, anything. I know, like, that feels like a much longer discussion. I don't have anything to say that's less than an hour long about that and doesn't yep. quote Nancy Bungie extensively and also involve me right. rereading the Midwestern novel. So right. that, that's as much of an answer uh, as I can give you. <laughs> very good. All right. Yeah. So go take us on another turn. All right. And this is my question to you. Uh -huh. Keep in mind, we have very little time. And I'm going to say, okay. 
it's okay if the answer to this question is that we don't have an answer because I'd like us to say nothing rather than say something stupid or worse, trite. Um, Very good. The epigraph of this novel, or this, yep. this collection of stories, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Do you have anything right. to say about that, Michael? Because I um, don't know that I do. So the the point, like, I, I have a little bit to say about that. Sure. And, like, I, I, I think it's just related to that concept of the dissolving. Mm. Um, again, it, it, so page 210, um, this is where Marta felt like a part of herself was streaming into the world, spreading all over without her permission. She felt something important was escaping. Um, so the the world was essentially being the predator upon Marta here. Um, and this is when like her her sexuality is outed and she doesn't w- without her consent, as it says here, mm-hmm. um, that uh, she it, it's not her possession anymore. She doesn't get to have it. It belongs to the world now. And so this sense of otherness mm-hmm. is really a key here, um, which was mentioned earlier, that that, that uh, tension between foreign and familiar um, is there throughout all of this. And so here that, that, that idea of dissolving into the world being a negative sort of thing, um, like the I can't be accepted by the world unless I belong to mm-hmm. the world. Um but do I want to be possessed in that way or do I want to belong to myself sure. and be separate? Is, um, I think what that uh, quotation is being appropriated into. Yeah. Like basically you said a more eloquent version of the only thing I could really get out of that. Um, okay. Just that idea of like, I mean, and there's, you know, you could, you could take it pretty far in, in so far as like, uh you know christ in this context is is talking in a sense where um mm. culturally like he's deviant um right you know to to use a potentially loaded word but um and these stories all take place and it's not super emphasized but it's definitely there in a context where a form of Christianity is the cultural dominant. It's not deviant. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so you could take it deeper into questions of like, who's deviant and who is sort of a subversive voice like Christ's, you know, potentially is, who is that addressing? Who is, you know, who is, you know, I mean the, the base set of questions, who is the Mm -hmm. world? Who is you, you know, um, what is love? You know, uh, yeah. Baby, don't hurt me. Yeah, I was trying to avoid going there, but I forgot I was doing a podcast with a 70-year-old man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I I think some of what you're saying there is, like, explicitly there in the story, what made them made you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Which, again... need to say more than that. Yeah, again, (laughs) you either have to say that or spend an hour on it, and there's no in-between. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Anyway. Oh, the only other thing I wanted to say on page 210, where it's interesting that 
in connection to the the quote from John 15, you draw drew us to that page because later yeah. on in the page, uh, Sigrid is described. The lamplight illuminated her hair, and she appeared to Marta like one of those paintings in churches where the head glows, denoting mm-hmm. some minor divinity. Um, yep, it's just interesting, you know, that that that's where where you drew us to mm-hmm. uh, in that context. Yeah, um, Michael, is your question like? Can we can we do it in a minute or should we just leave it? You said you had a no. question for me. No, I, I I pretty much brought it up already. The just the idea of the midwestern oh okay novel yeah. and stuff. So, but like we've we've covered I think sufficiently. We could go into more, but yeah, again, it's like, not necessary at this point. If if we wanted to, this could be a mondo book, as I've said about sure. more than one book that is you know two hundred seventy six pages or so, but. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. here we are. Um, all right. That brings us to the end of the episode. Again, potentially lots more to discuss, but you're <laughs> always, we have self-imposed chronological time-based limits and we must, um, hew to them. Mm-hmm. Michael, uh, we did, we have gotten to the end of four episodes I in which you failed to sacrifice yourself for the team and, and lose you the podcast denied to lose on your own and therefore have punished the entire podcast. I feel like you just took what I said and put it through Google translate into some foreign language <laughs> and then translated it back. This was like the same thing, but fractured. <laughs> Um, what? That's definitely <laughs> not what I did. Yeah. Why are you doing typing noises now? <laughs> I don't know. Like, that, that makes as little sense <laughs> as saying, hey, Icarus, say hi to your dad for me. Um, <laughs> Who would say that? Only an idiot. <laughs> Which, it's taken me this long to bring it up, but like I'm still not sure. Maybe I'll know in the edit, but I'm still not sure how much of that scene was... Me making fun of me, you making fun of me, like me making fun of you. Somehow, I it's very confusing. Anyway, no one lost. Someone Michael. was made fun of, and it was all bad. But <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. Those are both true facts. So, what are we gonna do about this? Well, I think we both unfortunately need to suffer a punishment. For we do both both linkages. <laughs> Think about how backwards this society of this podcast is. If everyone is obedient to the rules, everyone gets punished. Yep. I don't have any questions about that. I don't know. No, no questions at all. Just just an observation. <laughs> so um, our, 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 our normal um, baseline for a, a, a dual punishment is a Shakespeare race. Yes. Um, um, do you have a different idea or no no i that's that sounds great to me okay i have a slightly different idea because i think we've done shakespeare race a couple times and we will do it again Mm -hmm. in the future of course this is basically the same idea but slightly different uh and you can you can uh you know you can veto this if you want but i have gone to mcgonagallonline.org.uk 
and clicked on the gem of the day. Okay. And I vote that we... Ooh. Oof. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's a very long one. Um, oh, no. You did this. All right. Well, we're committed now. Uh, I'm going to send you this link and specifically because you michael said the phrase you did this and committed us both we are going to race ourselves mm -hmm. through the queen's visit to the exhibition by william mcgonagall and i'm gonna say if either or both of us like break down either laughing or in tears or otherwise <laughs> like that that's a lot like we've stumbled on the track and fallen on our faces <laughs> So this is going to happen within the first quatrain. <laughs> I'm almost tempted to say we can't laugh. I don't know. Maybe maybe oh, it's, no. maybe it's inherent. Uh, let Oof. me know when you're okay. ready. Alright, I'm ready. Alright, this is The Queen's Visit to the Exhibition by William McGonagall. Three, two, one... Twas in the year 1860... In the year of 1886 Wait, and then August the 18th day... Yep. Should I... I had I feel like I had an unfair advantage because I all right I'll I'll do this uh rock paper scissors go so I'll say three two one go okay and go you start we start okay. everyone starts ready three yep two one go twas in, in the year, year of eighteen eighty six in the August the eighteenth day her Majesty came to Edinburgh with spirits light and gay to view the international exhibition most exhibition most wonderful to behold which will be remembered for many a day by the young and the old and though the hour was early when she arrived in Edinburgh people's hearts seemed glad and free from sorrow because a very large number of people were still anxious to see and to welcome her the dragoon whose court was early in their places with their gorgeous uniform and their smiling faces all ready to guard her Majesty to the south arrival platform and among the rest was Mr Skinner in scarlet uniform when the pilot engine steamed to the station. And the people's hearts were filled with admiration when they saw Estelle Gilly in the Highland costume jump out of a compartment in the at the end of the Royal Saloon. Then right, with cap in right. hand, he approached the Royal Saloon. You can saloon. keep going if you want. I don't want. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to. No, like, this is this is that race that, like, everyone's seen the, the YouTube video of where, like, there were two competitors and it's like a like a hurdle race but like the person the one person's foot caught on the first hurdle and just face planted and then the other person <laughs> keeps going you know all those youtube videos of two person hurdle races um yeah don't well, ask any more well, questions there's a whole playlist about it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'll link that obviously in the show notes so people can hear what we were saying and read the rest because they obviously want to. Um, oh, of course, who wouldn't want to? <laughs> you all right? No, I'm not. McGonagall always hurts me. <laughs> uh, actually, the so this is a poem about the uh. What is it? International Expedition Exhibition of Industry, Science, and Art, uh, which was in Edinburgh in 1851. And, like, the notes on it, which talk about that, are actually quite fascinating, so. I'm sure. Uh, skip skip to that, everyone, and, and just ignore that. the actual thing. that. McGonagall did some good. Indirectly. I mean, not, yeah, very <laughs> indirectly. Very. Emphasis on indirectly. And also very. <laughs> 
All right. Well, now that we've been thoroughly McGonagall'd, um, yikes. Is this the only? No, it probably isn't. I was about to ask if this was the only podcast that uses McGonagall that isn't a Harry Potter podcast, like that uses the name McGonagall <laughs> as a shorthand. It probably isn't though. There's other literature podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. It is time to rate the stuff. Uh. Yes. My script says we rate the scotch first. In this case, we rate the okay. Irish whiskey. Yes. Are you asking me? Yes. Sorry. Oh. I decided to stare at the, the screen instead of like using my words because I'm a filthy okay. animal. <laughs> yeah, filthy animal. All right. <laughs> um, I am going to give this Redbreast Irish Irish whiskey, the Pedro Jimenez edition that I am currently drinking. Um, this this is a four point five. Mm, mm. This is a, not only is it easy to drink, but it is just delightful. And that's it. what what really hypes it up for me is there's like a strong licorice undertone, like black Ooh. licorice that's there. And I'm not a fan really of black licorice, but it blends so well in this this whiskey that oh like it's sweet, it's fruity, um, and it's it's got some some spice to it too. And like I said, it's just really easy to drink. This sure. is this is a solid, solid thing. Uh, I would I would buy this again in a heartbeat. Four point five. Nice. Um, yeah, I am rating again. Slightly different bottling. Uh, the Redbreast Single Pot Still, Loose Style Edition Sherry Finish. Um, but also four point five. Like the the risk with whiskeys that aren't Scotch or Rye is that they're too sweet. Like your bourbons get too sweet. Mm, your Irish mm-hmm. whiskeys get too sweet. Um. And this one has like honey flavors and like black currant and um, some like some like other like berry flavors, and it manages to do all that while still being, excuse me, um, still being very uh, light. Like it's not cloying at all. Um, there's some like cool. I don't know. There's some, there's some like other, there's definitely some like baking spices and some other stuff that will take it more like less sweet, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just very, it's, it's very good. Delightful is, is honestly the best word I can think of. You may have primed me with it, but like, it's, it's not Mm -hmm. wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's outside of the wheelhouse normally of whiskeys that i would that i would like just on paper but it's it's Mm -hmm. so something about it's so very good it's so very friendly that yeah i i do quite like it yeah fantastic um so secondly we rate the book on a scale of buy borrow or forget about it michael now this is complicated sure um this, this is our first short story collection and I, there, so several of these stories were published separately. Sure. Um, 
and like even under under other titles which we didn't talk about that's a that's for the secret third episode right um but uh so so that's really interesting and i think to an extent we could discuss just each of these 11 stories on their own for an hour oh yeah um which which is just a, a fascinating feature to it at the same time i i i did something with this book that i don't often do with books that i own and what what i often do with books that i own is i annotate uh a lot <laughs> i take i take a lot of notes um i did that for potluck i did that for little beast started tapering off with flesh really not a lot with as though that were love um and my notes became so infrequent that my last note is on page 210 of sure. this book sure. and there are 276 pages um because while there are several nuances to this and a lot of interest i felt like it was repetitive and i i would get just as much out of one story as i would out of the entire book hmm. um for that reason i'm i'm bouncing back and forth between a borrow it and forget about it. And the only reason I would lean towards a forget about it is because maybe you can find one of these short stories on its own. And that might be my recommendation. Find a short story, read that. If you're interested to read more, by all means, read more. But I, I don't I don't know that you need to. Like, definitely, we talked about this, that the, the book is structured in such a way um that specifically wants to get the, 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 the related tones and themes across um, as you read through all 11 stories. Um, but really, I, I think it could have stood as a novella with just the odd-numbered stories, and that would have been sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have the other stories on their own, they, I, I don't know that they add necessarily. I think they're each interesting on their own, and I could take any one of them on their own, perhaps. But I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't see the necessity for this book. So what so is my your rating? Is a forget, forget about it. Okay, interesting. Uh, I'm going to completely disagree and say buy it. Um, I am going to put a large asterisk on there and say yeah. buy it. If you're interested in um, the exact sort of books that I'm interested in, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I don't think this is a book for everybody. Uh, sure, you know it's and and like that's that's okay. I think like um, you know I mean maybe no books are for everybody, but like there is a very specific. A group of people that I think will appreciate this book and hmm. people outside of that group might very much not appreciate it at all. Um, sure. And like, Michael, I'm not putting you outside of that group because you said forget hmm. about it. I'm not necessarily sure that I'm in the group of people that this book is truly intended for. Um, mm-hmm. But I see, I agree with you about the repetition I mm-hmm. basically don't ever annotate my books until 
the second reading at least um so i don't sure. have that litmus test uh sure but like um what am i trying to say like i i, I think the repetition is in fact like modulation and that this book mm. plays with a set of themes and like very carefully modulates through them um and and sort of takes them from different directions like the 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 mentioning about sort of the braiding of it in early on in the first mm -hmm. episode was kind of the thing that slotted that into place for me where it's like mm. i think i think I think this book is put together very intentionally. I think like, could you take out mm -hmm. the odd numbered chapters and make them into a novella? Yes, absolutely. But I think it would be, I don't, I think you would lose something from having mm -hmm. the, uh, um, from having the even numbered chapters, because I think even though they don't necessarily like, obviously relate to sort of the surface level of the story of the you know of the the multi-part story i guess um i do think they repeat and expand on the themes in uh mm -hmm. various ways um and you know i mean any short story collection is always going to ride the line between like is this just a group of completely separate universes that happen to be strung together so that we can have something book length to publish versus like, is this mm, one mm -hmm. universe with a lot of different facets? And I think this book right. is playing with that distinction. Sure. Um, and, you know, I, I think for some people like, you know, it, it plays with it in an unnecessary way or the way that it mm. shakes out is like not necessary. But um, I think that, the the way that it is the way that it has its form right now with uh you know almost it, it almost to me the weird comparison is almost like an old rocky and bullwinkle serial where it's like <laughs> you have like the main story and then you have yeah. um fractured fairy tales and then you have another segment of the main story and you have you know, um, Peabody and Sherman, then you have a third segment of the main mm -hmm. story and that's your episode. Like, it feels like that, but in a much more sort of literary way. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess, I mean, partly it's like, I'm a, I'm a structuralist in my interests in the sense that I'm really interested in mm -hmm. playing with structure and not just repeating the like, you know, Sid Field three act structure or the Blake Snyder save the cat for every work of fiction forever. And so I will always mm -hmm. be prejudiced in favor of something that, like, does literally anything else than, like, what 90% of American novels published today and 99% of Hollywood <laughs> movies do yeah. with their structure. And so I appreciate that. And, like, you know, I think a lot of the themes and the territory it explores are important. And all of that said, the thing that pushed, like... All of that is 99% of why I say buy it. And then the thing that pushes mm -hmm. me that extra 1% or 2%, however you want to define it, would be mm -hmm. just the fact that this is a living author that I personally yeah. want to see more work from. And mm -hmm. the best way to do that with a living author is to buy their stuff. So right. I, I want to be very careful and say that's not why, but that pushes me over right. into... That's 
yeah. you know, if this if this were an author from a hundred years ago, I might say borrow it. Um, sure. So, you know, Did, if 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 Brandon Taylor were sitting right next to me right now, I might feel a little bit bad about <laughs> how that recommendation sounds. But like that's that's as honest as I can be with it. Can, can I? I I want to I want to like jump onto that. It's I, I don't want to really offer a rebuttal necessarily sure. because your rating is your rating. But like I want I want to jump on and and relate to something you just said. Because like I was I was thinking while you were offering your rating and how I offered my rating, like I I hope Brandon Taylor isn't listening to this episode, <laughs> um, because I do think he is very talented with his prose. Yeah. Um and in in many instances i really admired the way the way he wrote his craft of writing sure. um so i would be interested to read more brandon taylor um th- this book in particular I, I i i think why i stopped annotating was it just i was predict yeah. predicting it too well yeah i, um, I get it and like and you're 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 I there just, saying like i get it yeah exactly i was just yeah yeah, I, I I know what you're doing. This could be done twenty pages ago. Sure. <laughs> um. So I, I I don't know. Like if if I read each of these stories independently of an entire book, maybe yeah. I would appreciate it more. That is, I mean, that um, is to be fair. That is like the the other major risk of a collection of short stories. Right. Um, like, you know, we read Gerald Murnane's book, The Plains. Um. Mm-hmm. And I think we both said buy it at the time. Uh, right. But subsequently to that, I read his book Stream System, which is just like probably the largest collection of his stories available. Oh, wow. um, and it was that it was that thing you just described where it was like each individual story was like stupendous, at least, mo- you know, you always have a few does mm-hmm. like no one's no one's on fire 100 percent of the time. Excuse <laughs> <Right>. me. Um, <laughs> but it was like. He's so interested in the same very specific themes that like mm-hmm. two thirds of the way through the book, I got bogged down because it was like any individual expression, including the ones in the back part of the book of these themes, like would be amazing. But to just see them repeated over and over and over was like, I get it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I found myself partway through this book, almost wishing I had brought instead of this book brought a, uh, real life which is taylor's mm, his novel his novel yeah because mm-hmm. i don't know i i almost wonder if that would have been a more productive discussion but you know this is obviously the risk of bringing something that you just haven't read at all right well and it does make me wonder if we if we did another short story collection like would we have similar thoughts right because i've definitely had very similar thoughts to what you just described in mm-hmm. multiple short story collections. Sure. Like that's very much a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that said, um, Michael, how would you rate the pairing between Filthy Animals and uh, Redbreast Single Pot Still, Pedro Jimeno's edition? Mm-hmm. Uh, remind me of the scale for this. Uh, the scale I is... Perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch. I'm going to say a pretty good match. Interesting. It's really close to a perfect match, I think. Interesting. Um, it's just, I don't know. I, I didn't do this, but if I had been drinking the whiskey throughout 
while reading the book. Yes. Um, I, I think, I think, I, I don't want to say it would have helped, but, sure. <laughs> I, but I think, um, it, it, it creates kind of a tonal connection with this, this sweetness, this like undercurrent of, of discomfort with the, the, um, the black licorice, <laughs> um, but then overarching this, um, just like a, a something that that connects it all. I don't know. This this whiskey seems like it's got an overarching theme itself, and I don't know. That uh, makes me think of the book a little bit. Sure. Um, I would rate it. It's interesting. Like our our ratings are pretty divergent on this one. <laughs> um, because like I would rated a slight mismatch bordering on a total mismatch oh boy um <laughs> and it's possible that like this is where our slightly different expressions are like um coming into play somewhat um and it's also possible mm-hmm. that it's like just because i don't react to black licorice taste the same that you do same way you do but um like to me like how sweet and easygoing this this whiskey was like really tonally mismatched how like how much vampirism and power struggle and like Mm. trauma and even violence which is like a thing we didn't even touch on you know was going on Mm -hmm. in this like i felt like i needed a meaner whiskey to match the tone of this book and not like you know it's i guess it's hard to uh um I, I don't mean meaner in that, like, I needed a whiskey to be mean to me, but just, like, just to taste, like, meaner, mm. harder-edged. I don't know. I won't be able to mm-hmm. say it right without descending into cliches, but... Sure. Uh, yeah, so. Um, mm-hmm. So, Michael, we've done all our ratings. Yes. And now, mm-hmm. my script says... We're supposed to introduce our next couple of books. Yes. Are you ready to hear what we're going to read next time? Yes, please. All right. This is a book that I know that you own. I did just and... sell all my books. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, and I've teased it as one that I would bring, and it's time, Ethan. We're going to read Stuart Turton, The Devil in the Dark devil in the dark water michael i do not own that book <laughs> don't you no. i'm pretty sure you said you, you told me you did i said i was going to uh, so well wait. then my statement exists in the future tense as well <laughs> um <laughs> would you like to know i mean okay yeah sorry we should we should uh talk about this for a second because i am devil very excited about water, that Stuart turton's second novel it will yes. be our uh first i think repeat um author on this podcast yes. have you read the devil in dark water yet i have not yeah. my brother nick has the one who brought us seven and a half deaths of evelyn hardcastle sure. um i i won't i won't mention his his reflections upon it he's given me a very minimum sort of Oh, he doesn't want to prejudice upon you. the book, right? 
Um, and I don't want to prejudice you or the listener. Sure. <laughs> I but yes, so I, I that's like maybe the only reason I haven't picked it is because this would be our first repeat author. Sure. But at this point, it it I I, I need to read this book and I want to read it with you and discuss it. And so Excellent. here we are. First repeat author, Stuart Turton. Congratulations. <laughs> and he is the only and I mean this is not why, I assume. But he is the only author who uh, has, no. like, <laughs> given us, like, explicit written thorough, I mean, thorough-ish. I, I mean, I don't know. He's the only author who has given us explicit written feedback. Like, right. a like, few other... Like, Gaiman retweeted us once. Yeah, I think Gail Carriger retweeted us once. Yes, um, I think she might have, yeah. She retweeted or commented on a tweet or something. Yeah. Yeah, so, like... But, but Stuart Turton actually responded to a listen. Yeah. That's not why. No. Right. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that, and it's flattering. Yeah. So, so very flattering. But... um. But, yeah. Uh. Anyway, uh, but, yeah, but, like, I do, I do appreciate Stuart Turton separate from this choice you've made for that, too. Yes. But, anyway. <laughs> um, Michael, do you want to know what we are... Uh, reading after that. Yes, please. All right. I'm sending you a link because I forgot to send you the book yet, but I will <laughs> do that very soon. Just because, well, just so you know, and also because I want to know if you know anything about this book or author. No. All right. Well, this book uh, was... <laughs> is in our lives because of a competitor podcast. And by a competitor podcast, I mean oh, no. a vastly more successful book-related podcast than ours, <laughs> which is called The History of Literature. I So The History of Literature is uh, ho- created and hosted by a wonderfully sonorous-voiced man uh, who I whose name I tried to look up real quick, and all I can find is... That his name is Jack, um, but he peri- he mm-hmm. like he must have some pull or something because like he periodically gets like pretty good heavy hitter literary types on his podcast, and um, he had the author of our uh, second to next book. Um, I think I said that right. Uh, mm-hmm. The author is Chigozi Obioma. Um, who is a Nigerian-born writer, um, and Jack on the History of Literature had him on to talk about uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, Ishiguro, um, and specifically Mm -hmm. Ishiguro's novel The Remains of the Day, um, Mm. which is a novel I think about bringing to this podcast every single time. But I happen to be on listening to that podcast while I was on my way to a uh, used bookstore, because what else would I do with my time? Um, Right. And it was mentioned that Obioma's first novel was called The Fisherman, and since I was just, you know, in that mind space, I uh, just looked for his, his novel in the used bookstore I was going to and found it, and... I mean, I guess that's enough for me to just be like, this is on our podcast now. Um, 
Great. I mean, Obioma, I think for this novel, did win the Man Booker Prize and, um, you know, the New York Times crowned him the heir to Chinua Achebe. Um, mm. So, you know, this man is a big deal. Yeah, I guess I don't have anything yes. else to say about that. Uh, well, so this is that's, that's fantastic, and like the the blurb that you sent me, or like the link you sent me with the little blurb about it, has me fascinated. Right. So. Um, this is oh, this is like the second novel in a row I have brought that I have not read and don't know anything mm. other than like what's on the back cover. So basically, the you know the blurb I just sent you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, well, this is another yeah. one that, like, I haven't read, you haven't read, so this will be a a fun, fun set of episodes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, good. Yeah. So, anything else that you need to say about that, Michael? Nope. All right. So, uh, to be clear, our Next book uh, will be The Devil and Dark Water by Stuart Turton. Um, Please feel free to read along with us. Give us your feedback. If you get it in, you know, before we record, uh, we can be in dialogue with you. And that's always fun. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can contact us in the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Be sure to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Uh, we are at Room with Scotch on Twitter. Uh, Michael, are you on Twitter? I am at M G L I L I E N T H A L. I'm on Twitter at Bjartlet. That's at B J A R T L E T T. So, yeah, uh, you can submit your homework. There's a form uh, at tapestryradio.org/scotchcast. Um, past homework, current homework, future homework. Don't do plagiarism unless you want it to be funny. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, our backstage audio drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, a Fiasco RPG Real Play podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, another book podcast where three grown men uh, read the Freddy the Pig book series from 100 years ago for the first time, uh, or some of us for the second time, I guess. Um... And then there's Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG podcast. Uh, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Help us spread that word of mouth. Anything else to mention, Michael? That's what I can think of. Okay. And until next time, just remember, it is our party and we will cry if William McGonagall makes us. He always does. (laughs) 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 Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.